Hello, and welcome to the Faithful Forebearers. Episode 4, Alcuin. In an earlier episode, we focused entirely on the church in England, following Augustine of Canterbury, Theodore of Tarsus, and finally, the Venerable Bede. This episode, we will follow the life of the most influential pupil of their school, Alcuin. Alcuin, to an even greater extent than Boniface, would make the learning established in England world-renowned, and would establish that learning across Europe, sparking a little renaissance in the middle of the Dark Ages. Alcuin was probably born around 735 AD, though no one knows for sure. If so, that means he was born the same year that the Venerable Bede died. It is also said that he was born to a noble family, which may or may not be true, as that comes from later sources who might wanted to preserve the honor of Alcuin. However, Alcuin was not born in a happy time in northern England. In the little kingdom of Northumbria, where Bede's school was located, there was unrest. Bede had already seen the restlessness in the court of the king of Northumbria, and worried that serious trouble was brewing. And Bede was absolutely right. The nobles of Northumbria soon deposed their king, who was a friend of Bede, to install another one. However, not long after this, they disposed that king as well, and sent him into exile. From the years 756 to 796, there were seven different kings, and none of their reigns ended by natural death. Overall, the church in England was beginning a slight decline. The energy of Theodore, Bede, and Boniface were slowly fading. The English bishops and monks were becoming a little more lax, and were willing to adopt the pagan customs that had never quite disappeared during the Christianization of England. The church even had to adopt rules about what clergy could and couldn't wear, as the English had extravagant tastes in clothing, and the clergy in England were no exception. The only place where the energy and focus on learning was still burning bright was in the School of York, which Bede helped create. It was there that the young Alcuin discovered Aylbert, master of the school. Aylbert noticed right away that Alcuin was extremely talented in just about every subject he studied. He was also very well liked among the other students. At first, Alcuin's superiority had annoyed his classmates, but, at least as we're told, Alcuin was mild and good-natured, and in the end they couldn't help but like him. In 766, when Alcuin was likely in his early 20s, the Archbishop of York died, and his teacher, Aylbert, was picked to become the next Archbishop. With the schoolmaster now busy with the task of running the church in the area, Alcuin had to pick up a great deal of responsibility for that school, and started teaching and administrating the school himself. In continental Europe, there was also a sense of decline and chaos. The Eastern Roman Empire, or as it's often called, the Byzantine Empire, had just a toehold in Italy, in the fortress of Ravenna. Meanwhile, Rome, which still officially paid respect to Constantinople, was really left to fend for itself ever since the days of Gregory the Great. But in the 700s, things had severely strained the relationship between the Pope in the West and the Emperor in the East. The 700s also saw the iconoclastic controversy. This controversy was all about whether one should have religious images in church, and the two sides went like this. One side saw these images as a big problem, because uneducated lay people would start worshipping these images instead of worshipping God to whom these images were supposed to point. 
And these people kind of had a point. It seemed like many of the lay people were getting a little overexcited about these images. Along with that, some monasteries were overly profiting from having these images and taking advantage of people's adoration for them. So this group wanted to ban those images, and they were called iconoclasts. On the other side were the iconophiles, who thought the images were important to worship. They also had a good point. These images can help point people who can't read, they thought, to stories of the Bible and help people's devotional life. And this controversy may seem somewhat small compared to other problems the church faced, but at the time it was deadly serious. Hundreds of people were killed over this issue, and many of the people left the empire because of it. But this problem for now was only in the East, and in the West it was not an issue at all. Our old friend Gregory the Great had said this about it. I have heard, my brother, that lately, on seeing certain persons adoring images in your church, you broke those images and threw them away. Certainly I praise your zeal that nothing made by hand be adored, but you should not have broken those images. Pictures are placed in our churches in order that people who cannot read may learn from gazing upon the walls what they cannot get from books. It is your business to keep such images for the instruction of the ignorant and to keep your people from a sinful adoration of the same. It's one thing to adore a picture, it's another to learn from it, and to learn what rightly should be adored. This iconoclastic controversy, along with many other political maneuverings and increased taxes, was making the rift between Rome and Constantinople into a chasm. Finally, the Lombards defeated the last Byzantine stronghold in Italy, and Rome, under Pope Paul, gave up any idea of reconciliation between the Byzantines and Rome. But while Rome wanted to be independent, it was still very weak. It was nothing like its ancient heritage. The popes realized that in the dangerous world of the 8th century, with Muslims ruling Africa and unfriendly Lombards in northern Italy, they would need a strong ally. And so the popes, starting with Pope Stephen II, decided they should make friends with the kings of the Franks, who ruled modern-day France, which makes sense. This special relationship between France and the popes would last over a thousand years. So this was the political situation that Alcuin stepped into when he left England and came to continental Europe. The kings of the Franks were quickly becoming the protectors of Rome and close allies with the Pope. The emperors of Constantinople in the east had very little influence in Italy or the west in general. The Lombards and many other barbarian groups in Germany and eastern Europe were wreaking havoc across the more civilized lands of Italy and Greece. It was among this chaos when Alcuin first met the new Frankish king, Charles, whom you likely know as Charlemagne. Charles had finally just beaten the Lombards and freed Rome from their menacing, and now he was looking to solidify his rule, which will eventually expand all the way from modern-day France to about half of Germany. Alcuin had gone to Italy, following his old master Aelbert, and was already becoming somewhat well-known among the scholars of his day. The two, Alcuin and Charles, happened to meet in Parma, where Charlemagne, who had heard of the bright teacher Alcuin, asked him to join his growing palace school so he could help spread learning across his kingdom. Alcuin agreed, and then the two became attached for the rest of their lives. It would be an inspired partnership. So Alcuin accompanied Charlemagne back to Aachen, which was Charlemagne's capital. Aachen was a splendid capital. Charlemagne had constructed a magnificent church and palace there, with baths fed by natural springs, and it was the center of a quickly growing Frankish kingdom, 
and with all the design Charlemagne put into it, it certainly looked the part of a capital of an empire. But Charlemagne did not only want great buildings. He was also fascinated with learning. The palace school had been a place where the royal children and nobles would learn courtly manners, but Alcuin made it something much greater. Alcuin introduced the study of the liberal arts, specifically the trivium and the quadrivium. These are the ancient categories of learning, the trivium being three subjects that have to do with words, grammar, rhetoric, and logic. The quadrivium had to do with numbers, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. This classical system would become the standard for medieval learning and even the foundation for our modern education. But of all the schools of antiquity and the Middle Ages, Alcuin's was probably the one you'd most want to attend yourself. When Alcuin arrived, he joined several other learned men of the time, Peter of Pisa, Paul the Deacon, and later another man named Paulinus. All of these men helped teach the children, and oftentimes their parents, and even Charlemagne himself would join in and learn. All four excelled in teaching, but soon Alcuin became the headmaster, and quickly his wit and skill for administration and teaching showed through. As a teacher, Alcuin was brilliant. And more than that, he was also very fun. And Charlemagne's children were especially fond of him. And he was of them, too. Charlemagne had six children with his wife, Hildegard. Three boys and three girls. And yes, that's the same Hildegard who was good friends with Leoba from our last episode. Alcuin gave all the kids nicknames, along with all his other students, along with the servants he worked with daily, his fellow teachers, and even Charlemagne himself. He called the wine pour, a man named Ippinus, Nehemiah, since Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the Persian king Cyrus. A gifted student who later became a court poet was nicknamed Homer, which was very high praise. Charlemagne's second son, Pepin, who was sent to rule Italy for his father, was nicknamed Julius. But of all of Charlemagne's sons, his third, Louis, who would eventually take his father's throne, was especially attached to Alcuin. He was not as strong or warlike as his two older brothers, but he would come to Alcuin with questions of theology and learning. When he ruled, he would become known as Louis the Pious, probably in large part because of the teaching of Alcuin. But the most honorific of all the nicknames was given to Charlemagne, whom Alcuin called David. The court's busyness and playfulness was one of its greatest strengths. Alcuin was happy to tease his students in good nature, and they teased him back. He would also like to teach in riddles, and loved to hear riddles people would tell him as well. One of his riddles went like this. There were three men. One was never born and died once. The second was born once and never died. The third was born once and died twice. The answer is from the Bible. You can figure it out yourself if you'd like to, but if you want to, press pause because I'm about to tell you the answer. Alright, ready? Here it is. It's Adam, who was created, not born, Elijah, who was taken up into heaven by a fiery chariot, and Lazarus, who was raised from the dead by Jesus. While a great teacher, Alcuin himself was no great scholar. He did not write any revolutionary or groundbreaking or even particularly original works, but he was excellent at compiling and simplifying the works of others, and he introduced many classics to Charlemagne's court. Many of the works Alcuin's did write were textbooks and learning aids. One of his most famous is a book of mathematic word problems, which, as awful as that sounds, is actually pretty good. 
and some of them are pretty funny. For instance, one goes like this. Three young men each had a sister. As the six were traveling together, they came upon a river which they were obligated to cross. There was but one boat, which could hold only two persons, and ethics demanded that none of the women should cross alone with one of the men, unless he was her brother. How do they proceed? It's similar to the old farmer with his bag of grain, a chicken, and a fox, but the solution is not as simple as you think, so you have to solve it yourself. But sometimes, in his strange humor, Alcuin simply threw nonsense riddles into his work, like this one. Three hundred pigs are to be killed on three successive days, an uneven number on each day. An impossible feat. I don't get it at all, and apparently it didn't really make sense back then either. Alcuin also helped make learning throughout all of Charles's empire more uniform. During his time, Alcuin promoted a new form of writing, minuscule writing. This was important because over the last several hundred years, many different script types had appeared throughout Europe, which could make reading very confusing. While everyone might be writing in Latin, a scholar from Aquitaine might not be able to make out the letters from a scholar in Burgundy. This minuscule script set a standard way for people across Charles's empire to understand each other. And it's actually similar to what it sounds like. Minuscule writing used primarily lowercase letters. And this new writing was not an invention of Alcuin's, but something that he understood would greatly help Charles's empire. He is, however, credited with inventing one thing you know pretty well. He invented the first question mark, although it didn't look anything like the one that we know now. Charles himself wanted to learn how to write these letters, but we hear he didn't get very far. As one biographer wrote of him, Charles also tried to write, and he used to keep tablets and blanks in bed under his pillow. At leisure hours, he might accustom his hand to the form of letters. However, as he did not begin his efforts in due season, but late in life, they met with ill success. Poor Charles. At least he had some other talents to fall back on. That biographer was himself a part of Alcuin's school, a man named Einhard. Einhard was one of the many students here, but he was one of the most brilliant and most important. While Alcuin could speak and write Latin well, Einhard could write it beautifully. However, Alcuin did give him the name Nardalus, which means dwarfling, as he was very small. But apparently it didn't scar Einhard too badly, as he speaks pretty highly of Alcuin in his biography of Charlemagne. Einhard states, But when Albinus, that's Alcuin, an Englishman, heard that the most renowned Emperor Charles gladly entertained wise men, he entered into a ship and came to him. Now Albinus was skilled in all learning beyond all others of our times, for he was the disciple of the most learned priest, Bede, who next to St. Gregory was the most skillful interpreter of the scriptures. And Charles received Albinus kindly and kept him at his side to the end of his life, except when he marched with his armies to his vast wars. Nay, Charles would even call himself Albinus's disciple, and Albinus he would call his master. Now it's interesting that Einhardt says Charles kept Alcuin at his side except for when he marched to war, because as it turns out, war was something Charles was almost continually doing. During his long reign, he fought the Lombards, the Saxons, the Slavs, the Danes, and put down numerous uprisings in his own country. And when Charles conquered, he would often try to Christianize the land he conquered. But this was extremely difficult for him to do with the Saxons. 
The Saxons lay just east to Charlemagne's reign, and for most of his reign he battled them, over thirty years in total. And they, according to the sources, were also quite treacherous. While many of the sources say that Charlemagne was usually humble and kind, no one says that about his dealings with the Saxons. At one point, he tried to force them all to be baptized, and if they refused, they would be killed. Alcuin had to step in and remind Charles that conversion by threat of death is not exactly theologically sound. And as a testament to his respect for Alcuin, Charles stopped any forced baptisms and forced conversions. While Alcuin was not teaching in the palace school or advising Charles, he was also keeping up an impressive correspondence with abbots, priests, and bishops across Europe. Over 300 of his letters survive today, which give us an excellent view into the daily life of Charlemagne's empire. Alcuin's time at the palace school was apparently a very happy time for everyone involved, but sadly, it had to come to an end. In 790, Alcuin took a leave of absence to return to his home in England for two years. But Charlemagne, after facing a heresy spread throughout his kingdom, called Alcuin back to his court, and Alcuin obliged. But in 793, while fighting the adoptionist heresy, Alcuin received terrible news. The church and the town of Lindisfarne, where the English Renaissance of learning had begun 100 years before, had just been attacked and pillaged by Vikings. Many of Alcuin's old friends were killed. Never before has such a terror appeared in Britain. Behold, the church of St. Cuthbert, splattered with the blood of God's priests, robbed of its ornaments. This Alcuin wrote to one of his friends. Unfortunately, this was a harbinger of things to come in the next centuries, when England would be ravaged by the Vikings. But at least for now, such attacks were rare, even though devastating. Alcuin was now in his sixties, and was starting to think about retiring. Charlemagne had a new and energetic teacher named Theowulf, who would make an excellent successor to Alcuin. So Charles let his old friend retire. Alcuin became the abbot of a monastery in Tours, where he spent the rest of his life. It was only semi-retirement, however, as Alcuin kept the spirit of education in Tours. He also kept up his correspondence with his old friends from the school, and he had many friends across Charles's now very large kingdom. He would write to bishops in Italy, England, and Germany, and he would always keep in contact with his good friend, King David. Charlemagne had made sure that Alcuin was not too far out of reach at any time, and could always be reached in an emergency. In 804, Alcuin died in Tours. A week before his death, he was struck with paralysis and could not move or speak. But two days before he died, some monks heard him chanting, O Clavis David, which ends like this, Come lead the captive, from his house of prison, he who sitteth in darkness and in the shadow of death. Alcuin left a significant legacy behind him. Charlemagne had created a great empire, but in many ways Alcuin made it a good empire. He brought a level of civility and calmness to Emperor Charles, and he'd established the importance of learning and study. Sadly, this rebirth of learning was not long to last, as Northern Europe was in store for another dark period. Charles's empire would fracture in just two generations, and soon Vikings and Magyars would strike at Europe from the east and the north. And while education would take a significant downturn in the next two centuries, it would still be from the foundation that Alcuin had built that it would make its return. 
While Alcuin didn't contribute anything major to the Christian canon, he was a key torchbearer in learning for Christianity, and ultimately for all of civilization. He himself was a man who walked the middle path. He was not the scholar or writer that Bede was, and he was not the heroic missionary that Boniface was. He was not a strict desert monk who forsook the comforts of this life. Alcuin had greatly enjoyed the pleasures of his palace life, and this was something of which he was pretty self-conscious, and so sometimes felt unworthy of his position. And looking back at his easy life, he was sometimes troubled in his old age. But at least from what we can tell 1,200 years later, I don't think he had anything to be ashamed of. While he may not have been a brilliant scholar or a brave hero, he was certainly a clever, kind, and thoughtful man, one who had the respect of his students, his superiors, and his friends. In Einhard's famous biography of Charlemagne, he tells of Alcuin's legacy like this. Charles appointed him to rule over the Abbey of St. Martin, near the city of Tours, so that when he was absent, Albinus might rest there and teach those who had recourse to him. And his teaching bore such fruit that among his pupils the modern Gauls or Franks came to equal the ancient Romans or Athenians. But we will end our look at Alcuin with a short excerpt from another biography of Charlemagne, written by a man with the unfortunate moniker, not Kerr the Stammerer. That's almost as hard to say as Forbearer. He writes this little amusing tale of Alcuin. So the most glorious Charles saw the study of letters flourishing throughout his whole realm, but still he was grieved to find that it did not reach the ripeness of the earlier fathers. And so, after superhuman labors, he broke out one day with this expression of his sorrow. Would that I had twelve clerks, so learned in all wisdom and so perfectly trained, as were Jerome and Augustine. Then the learned Alcuin, feeling himself ignorant indeed in comparison with these great names, rose to a height of daring that no man else attained in the presence of the terrible Charles, and said, with deep indignation in his mind, but none in his countenance, The maker of heaven and earth has not many like to these men, and you expect to have twelve? With that, we shall say farewell to Alcuin. Next time, we'll head east, and we'll look at the work of John of Damascus and Cyril and Methodius. We'll see how missionary work was being done in the eastern Mediterranean, and how Christians fared under this new Muslim rule. My name's Eric Claussen, and thanks for listening. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate it, and maybe tell a friend. See you next time.